comic books, video games, television, and movies. In a world where the media has been dominated by superheroes and sci-fi, these barely Irish assholes must band together to make sense of it all. It's not news. It's utterly nonsense. This is, once again, the Utterly Nonsense Podcast. If you're new, you can check us out virtually anywhere you get your podcasts. We were just recently added to both TuneIn and the iHeartRadio app, so you can go look for us there. You can find the links to all of our platforms on our Linktree page. That's linktr.ee slash utterlynonsense. And folks, this podcast episode is going to be slightly different from our norm, as it was just me this week, and CJ's off doing whatever he's doing somewhere in the world. So about the first third of this podcast is going to be a discussion we had about the rise of Skywalker. Now, we had recorded this back when we were doing our top 10 of the 2010s podcast, so that was right around New Year's. But I had cut that part out because I just wanted that episode focused on the top 10s, and I've been banking this for a while, so it's finally time to cash it in. And the rest of this podcast will consist of the audio from the videos I posted this past week on our YouTube channel. By the way, go check us out on YouTube, Utterly Nonsense. And when one segment is over, you'll hear this sound. And that'll indicate the transition into the next topic. So I think I've done enough explaining to lead this in. So without further ado, let's get into it. Now, I want to get your thoughts on The Rise of Skywalker, because famously, we both disagreed on uh, The Last Jedi. You liked it a lot. I did not. Uh, we've talked so, about that before. Right. So, um, first of all, I will say, uh, for anyone who is unfamiliar with our opinions on Rise or uh, Last Jedi, um, in a nutshell, I, uh, like, I actually did enjoy The Last Jedi, and for that matter, I enjoyed Rise of Skywalker. Uh, that being said, they're both flawed movies. They're like it, it's not like the main trilogy, the original trilogy, where I have very few gripes, if any. There's obviously like very small misgivings that I have uh, with the original trilogy. There's bigger misgivings that I have with Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker. Um, without getting too deep into Last Jedi, I, I I think a lot of what we've seen in the sequel trilogy has been kind of disjointed. Uh, I think the one thing that a lot of the community is sort of united on with uh, Last Jedi is just how divisive it was, how, like, whether you liked it or hated it, Ryan Johnson did a lot to subvert your expectations. He <laughs> did a lot to uh, <laughs> sort of subvert the classic Star Wars tropes, which a lot of fans were not happy about. Um, I, I think Rise of Skywalker served sort of as a course correction. I think J.J. Abrams did pretty well to build off of what Ryan Johnson did while also trying to make a satisfying ending. Was he absolutely perfect in his execution? No, but, you know, it, it's Star Wars. How could you possibly meet your fans' expectations? It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and what I will say about the way it continued some of the things that happened in The Last Jedi was I did like how they didn't really go back on 
I didn't think, but kind of continued on the whole thing about Kylo Ren saying her parents were nobody. It was just because he was trying to like emotionally manipulate her into thinking, you know, she didn't really matter and she should just join him. Yeah, and and I I think it is pretty clear, and I I sort of made this observation when we first started talking about Last Jedi. Um, how the hell did Kylo Ren possibly know who her parents are? He didn't know what the whole twist was. He was as surprised as the rest of the audience when we found out exactly who Palpatine is. Yeah, I I will say I thought that was actually a pretty nice sort of addendum to the Star Wars canon. You know, um, it, it makes sense that uh, Palpatine is sort of the puppet master behind the scenes. It makes sense that Snoke didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, it makes sense that Rey does have this lineage, even if it isn't uh, directly connected to the Skywalkers. Yeah, and that was one of the theories, even before Force Awakens came out, when everybody was saying, oh, who's the new protagonist going to be? It's obviously going to be related to somebody. It's either going to be, you know, Luke's kid, uh, Han and Leia's kid, or like maybe uh, she's a Kenobi, or maybe she's a Palpatine. That was always something that was out there. So I, I felt like almost like J.J. Abrams just looked at a list of fan theories and just, and just picked, picked one he one, thought yeah. made sense. Yeah, But it <laughs> yeah. does kind of make sense if you look at in The Last Jedi when she's keeps saying, oh, I feel the pull to the darkness, and he says, you went right for it. Yeah, like, no, oh, it, well, that's why. It, you do sort of get the sense, and I will say, I don't think that was what Ryan Johnson planned. I don't think he really had a clear plan for the next movie. But um, you do sort of get the sense that Luke knows there's something going on with her past, that there is something that, uh, you know, she, what, like, you, you know that there is some pull from the dark side. You know that she is leaning in that direction for some reason that happens to be stronger than the rest of the Jedi. I, I will say I did rewatch The Last Jedi prior to uh, actually seeing Rise of Skywalker. I, I still think it holds up. I still don't think it's that terrible of a movie, even though it does have these misgivings. I, I will say two things that have changed in the two years since that movie came out. I, I've grown to accept Rose more like I, I genuinely don't <laughs> hate her as much as I did the first uh, couple times I saw it. Um, they actually tone her down a lot in Rise of Skywalker. Like, I, I think she's a lot Thankfully. more bearable as a character in this. <laughs> Which is barely a character at all. Yeah, um, Laura Dern's character, whose name I can never remember. I know you refer to her as uh, Captain Gender Studies. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Admiral Holdo, I think. Yeah, which, uh, yeah, it sounds about right. Um, I, I Like, look, she is a terrible leader, and that was just a really terrible decision by the Resistance to, like, put her in charge. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. if you don't convey what your thoughts are and you have a half-assed plan, it's not going to work. Your crew's going to turn against you. That's obvious. What the hell was she thinking? Um, that being said, that whole <laughs> scene, th- that whole scene where she goes into light speed and just completely destroys this Death Star cruiser, it's fucking like one of the best shots in the entire movie, you know? Yeah. And yet in the new movie, they explain it away with one offhand in line. It's like, oh, what about the Holdo maneuver? Ah, that's one in a million. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess we're not going to see that again. Yeah. I, I mean, it would be boring if we saw it more than once, wouldn't it? I don't know. But, um, and then they do that, that light speed jumping thing whatever that was it's like oh we can evade them if we do really really short light speed jumps to here and there well i I don't know if it was as much evading them as like just maneuvering away it's like um it it was more like uh they they were weren't necessarily trying to lose them they were just trying to make them lose focus uh by changing their surroundings that rapidly Um, obviously only a master pilot could uh, steer that yeah sorry what's up that reminds me of this episode of star trek where uh, um, Picard finds the USS Stargazer. I think he finds it adrift in space or something like that, which was the ship that he was formerly captain of. And there was a story that 
he was attacked by these Ferengi ships and his ship was outmatched because there was like two of them, two warships. And so uh, he did this thing that became known as the Picard Maneuver where he went to warp for a very short distance and then came out of warp just so that it looked like that there was a double image of the Stargazer. So it looked like he was in two places at once. And so when the Ferengi ship shot at the uh you know like the after image of him that gave him the opening to fire everything and then win the battle <laughs> neat the picard maneuver star trek did it first that's nah, it's not the same thing but okay um so he, like here's my uh, sort of final thought my one sort of major criticism um well, first of all, I can accept the whole Palpatine thing, right? Like, it makes sense that he was behind the shadows. I, like I said it. that already. Yeah, no, I thought it was nice. Um, Here's what I will say, and here's the problem I had with it. First of all, there was no hint that Palpatine was still alive throughout Force Awakens or Last Jedi. There was really no sort of build up to the twist. They just sort of launch into uh, they launch into Rise of Skywalker with a message from Palpatine has arrived. And uh, how much cooler would it have been if we had actually heard that message, like, at the same time as the rest of, like, this cast, you know? That was just really poorly executed. I don't know what they were thinking. And they could have easily thrown in another half an hour at the beginning just showing that and, like, had something else with the text, like, talking about how she's been training with uh, Leia for the past couple years. One more gripe I did have with the Palpatine thing, and this, like, is just occurring to me now. Like, it's not something that really bugged me at the time, but, uh... So this uh, planet, Exodon, it's supposed to be like this super secretive Sith base, and yet it has just this massive following of, like, his supporters just rallied around, you know? Um, Are those all Sith or something? Well, they're supposed to be, and it's supposed to be the Sith planet, which uh, would imply that there are, like, other, like, massive amounts of Sith already gathered on this whole thing, but... uh, New planet no one's ever heard of, at least not that I know of. Exagon, yeah. It's weird. Again, that's another weird thing that they never seem to mention. They don't mention a lot of things. That's a trend with the movie. If you'll notice, a lot of things, and I agree with this criticism about... You know, all the various amounts of plot holes that are in it, lots of things are just introduced and then it just it's just to move on to the next scene and none of them are explained. It's just thing happens, let's move on. And the reason why I, why I was okay with that is because I, I wasn't really planning to think while watching it. It's just, you know, like I said in the review, I went into it with zero expectations. I just... I don't know. I just wasn't caring, I guess. And I could follow along the story just fine, even if things weren't explained. It's not like I was hung up on anything. It's just like, oh, okay, whatever. Next scene. Yeah, I mean, so that's sort of where I was at with it. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's going to take me multiple rewatchings to really figure out if I love it or hate it. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to have, like, a really strong reaction either way. But uh, if I really had to give it, like, a ranking, it's probably, like, a 7 out of 10 for me at this point. And like I said, as somebody who was definitely against most of, if not all, of what 8 was about, I came out of this one not hating it, so I don't know. I guess that's kind of a good thing, almost a good thing. And the one main criticism I heard for it is that the fact that Palpatine's still alive is kind of a slap in the face to fans because it... It nullifies the sacrifice of Darth Vader, but I well, don't okay. really agree with so, that. So, well, first of all, like they make pretty clear that uh, Palpatine is more—he's he, beyond mortality. He's beyond 
he he's basically this godlike creature in the Star Wars universe. If well, godlike is the wrong term. Um, but he's basically an, a very powerful being who can't be killed through conventional means. We never see his body like after the fall of the Death Star, so he could potentially still be alive from that. Um, that being said, like the the one sort of cop out that we get with the Force, and especially with the dark side of the Force, is that there are powers that we're never going to see. That there are abilities that just are beyond our comprehension. Or the dark side is a path to many abilities that some consider to be unnatural. Yeah, look, it's sort of a cop out, but like it it works. It does make sense. Like they've sort of hinted at that being a thing before you know yeah no i I don't hate that part of it um i i I can buy that he survived through the events of return of the jedi even if even if he's still alive or whether it was a clone or doesn't matter the whole thing about vader you know turning good or wasn't the fact that it it wasn't him killing palpatine that wasn't the pivotal event it It was was him him saving deciding Yeah. yeah it was him deciding to go against his master at the risk of himself, which he knew, and turn against everything that he'd done since he became Darth Vader and, you know, actually save his son from it and thereby saving everybody at that time. If you want to argue that, oh, it it undoes everything that the Skywalker saga built up. Well, to me, The Force Awakens undid everything when they started off with, oh, it's war again. It's still another empire and rebels. That, from the start, was the undoing of it. Which yeah, is like, I, I, I don't mean, know why people could say, oh, this movie destroyed the saga. It's like, no, no, not really. So I, I will say, I think the sequel trilogy is it, it does sort of lack this cohesive force that the original trilogy did have. Um, you know, the prequels were sort of a mess, too, but I'm not really touching that at this point. You know, obviously, there's the issue in the original trilogy with uh, the plot of Return of the Jedi sort of mirroring the plot of a. Uh, uh, New Hope of the original Star Wars, you know, with the Death Star blowing up and the Resistance celebrating, you know. Well, that was like the only similarity. The main thing was the whole throne room scene. And we had a throne room scene in, in The Last Jedi and we kind of had it in this movie too, which I thought was funny. Yeah, which, you know, I, I don't mind it. Like, you're going to have parallels. You're going to have this whole message of history repeating itself of like the characters growing, how they interact in certain situations, it changes over time. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, it doesn't really bug me that much. The one thing I thought was strongest about the sequel trilogy, like, and I'll preface it by saying I think the sequel trilogy, if you, if you hate it, I think it can pretty much be safely ignored. And you can just look to all of the other novels and comics that have been, or video games that have been made about it, you know, since in the past that Disney chose to push aside. Like, and and the same thing with the prequels too, like no matter how the prequels turned out, they still end up as the original trilogy. And no matter how the sequel trilogy ended up, you could still just say, oh, well, I don't want that to happen. So I'll use one of these other things. But I thought the strongest thing throughout it was the actual relationship built up between Rey and Kylo. The fact that we get a protagonist antagonist that isn't just oh we're we're facing each other until the end or you know we're strictly just good guy bad guy it's actually something a little bit more there which you know obviously we see culminate in the very end there you know he he has like an affection for her for some reason yeah it's weird that they kiss but uh you know (laughs) But not I didn't think it was that weird. I, I thought it was I, building I, to that since like, since the I, beginning. I mean, you always understand that there's this relationship between the two, that there's a, what do they call it, a duad, a dyad between them. 
I and that's fine, but like it, it's it the kiss just seemed like it came out of nowhere. Like it wasn't going to lead to it 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 obviously wasn't going to lead to a full-blown romance or anything. So why even include it in that capacity? Why not no, end I with disagree. a hug or something? I think it could have happened in the last Jedi you know, after he killed Snoke, if there weren't all the throne room guards in there, I think it would have happened. Yeah, because maybe. up to that point, they were reaching out to each other and, like, talking about their feelings and shit. And even in The Force Awakens, you know, they're reaching into each other's minds, so it kind of starts that whole deeper connection that was referenced in that one Variety article. Remember we talked about that a while back? Yeah, so I mean, we made a video around the time that came out on the whole potential of a Raylo romance. And, you know, I, I could I obviously see that um, we, you know, pointed to The Last Jedi as being that connection, um, as them having that connection, I should say. But, yeah. uh, it, you know, it, as we approached it more, I realized it really couldn't happen. There's no way Kylo Ren could sort of be forgiven for his deeds, like after this whole thing was over, he basically had to die to sort of be redeemed, you know, like he couldn't have lived a normal life after having served as, as the uh, Supreme Leader of the uh, uh, First Order. Yeah, well, the final thing he does is he, uh, they establish it and <laughs> it's almost like they did it retroactively. The one scene where she heals that weird snake monster, she explains that she's essentially giving a part of her life force to heal it. And so, in order to heal her from death, I guess he had to give all of his life force. So now it's kind of like his spirit is it lives on within her. And in that way, she is a Skywalker because she contains the spirit essence of a skywalker yeah and, i guess um you know i guess that's the I, what they I, were going for well I, I sort of thought by that whole last phrase you know my name is ray skywalker um I, I i thought it was more getting at the idea that you're not really defined by your family you're more defined by your actions you're more defined by your surroundings you're more defined by the people you call family than your family itself yeah no definitely i'm just saying that that adds a deeper level of reasoning behind it Fair enough. That she would be able to say that. And also because he doesn't appear as a force ghost in the end, which wouldn't make sense how he could anyway. Because as we know, uh, Qui-Gon apparently trained Yoda and Obi-Wan how to become force ghosts. But he himself could not manifest as one like they could because, you know, he didn't actually study that before he died. So he can only manifest as like a voice or manipulating fireflies or something like that. This was this happened in um the Clone Wars series. Yeah, I know. They explain that. It's yeah, sort of ridiculous. I had to whatever. look this up because I was like, how could these people be force ghosts? It still doesn't make sense to me how Anakin could have been a force ghost at the end of six. Explain that plot hole. Okay. What do you think about the whole Mary Sue thing? <laughs> Uh, you know, it makes sense that given a, and that the fact that she is a Palpatine, that given that she has this family lineage, that she would have a clear force sensibility, or force sensitivity, um, and that she would be naturally inclined to be more powerful with it. Um, you know, we, n we never saw Palpatine as like a young dude. For all we know, he must have been the same way. And, you know, you look at anyone who we've sort of followed from the beginning, whether it's Anakin, uh, Luke, uh, I, I guess Leia to some extent. Um, so no, it doesn't really bother me that she has this sort of all powerfulness, especially since, uh, when you see how her abilities sort of change between the three movies, uh, especially from, uh, like last Jedi, I, I guess last Jedi and force awakens were more or less like right after each other. Like they were separated by a few days or something. Well, their whole explanation. And even though I think it's kind of dumb, like I understand what they're going for is that now there's, this is also, um, I think clone wars canon. 
there's two kinds of forces. There's the living force, which is as uh, I think, yeah, Yoda says it, right? Or, or is it Obi-Wan? I don't, I don't remember. But he says, you know, that's the, the force which uh, surrounds us, binds us, penetrates us, holds everything together. It's the stuff we manipulate. It's in all the living things. That's what individuals can manipulate. But then there's the cosmic force, which is like the embodiment of more or less the will of God in the Star Wars universe. And that is what makes all these events happen in the manner that they do. Like, people with their individual wills using the living force is what throws the cosmic force off balance, and then it tries to rebalance itself by making all these things happen, i.e. Rey being powerful enough to combat whatever she needed to fight. Sure. And Uh, I think, I guess, because it is, all of the EU stuff is non-canonized, so I I don't know if there's anything referencing Darth Plagueis in the Disney canon. I, I could have sworn I read something that it was now canon, and I, someone confirmed it, but uh, okay. I, I don't know how but much But I still much like to think to it. that it was, remember when Palpatine talks about uh, he could manipulate the Metachlorians to create life? I think Palpatine created Anakin. Anakin is a Palpatine. Skywalker, Palpatine, what's the difference? They're the same. Yeah, I guess you could make that sort of uh, conclusion um actually that would make a lot of sense wouldn't it uh yeah yeah <laughs> well i mean think about it uh there is this whole idea of like the immaculate consumption there's the whole jesus parallel with anakin and phantom menace not nah, dude it was um, palpatine playing around in her womb <laughs> it, it it does sort of make sense it sort it's of lends credence to the whole idea that he is a godlike figure in the universe too doesn't it yeah and remember he was always playing the long game i could see that being his plan from the beginning well, what's his plan to eventually have this character grow up to betray him? <laughs> well, no, I think origi- originally it was uh, Darth Plagueis trying to create a being out of the dark side to essentially be the ultimate apprentice. So I just think that uh, Palpatine took over. He kills Plagueis and steals his plan. Okay. Although I think he actually in canon kills Plagueis after episode one. So I don't know. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't matter. The series is over. We don't have to be mad anymore or sad anymore. It's it's done. For now. For now. <laughs> They're going to milk this thing until we're old and gray. Yeah. I'm not that mad about it. I don't know. A lot of people are up in arms, but I think most of that is just people on YouTube trying to get clickbait views at this point. No, I, I mean, you look at any of these major fan controversies, any sort of outrage you see anywhere on the internet, it's really just people looking for attention. Like, can we just get that out in the open? I, I think that's, like, well-known, but people never actually say it. Just watch. In like 15 years, you're going to get a younger generation saying, you know, those movies weren't that bad, just like they're doing with the prequels. Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't hate the prequels. I, I wasn't a fan. I grew up with but, them. Uh, I, I sort of, yeah. Well, I don't really like to. I, I grew up with them too, I and I just thought they were boring as hell at the time. How do you think these trade viceroys will do with the Chancellor's demands? These Federation types of cowards. Negotiations will be short. Let me tell you, I have a degree in political science. I think politics are fascinating. Attack uh, Attack of the Clones made it boring. Attack of the Clones or Phantom Menace? Well, I guess it was a little bit of both, but I think Attack of the Clones focuses more on the whole Senate, right? Um, No, I think it was Phantom Menace, the whole thing with Queen Amidala, half a dollar, quarter dollar. Yeah, well, and whatever, her, that's part of it. Her, her group of uh, body doubles. <laughs> okay. The whole thing about Naboo, what was it? They were holding the Queen hostage because they didn't like the way they were getting taxed. The whole trade it's, federation it's... is all about taxes. Yeah, it's a this weird This is what happens when you don't have movies. an army to keep things in order. 
which is why I think it's so dumb, the New Republic. This is what happens when you give George Lucas complete creative control over the franchise. <sighs> yeah, and then he sold it, and now we got the Disney trilogy. Are all you prequel haters happy now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm happier, honestly. So a bit of amusing news came out a couple days ago about the latest DCEU film, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of Nobody Really Cares. So this was apparently a direct request from Warner Brothers to a couple of major theater chains like AMC and Regal to change the title of the film as they list it to Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. Now this is funny for a couple reasons, chiefly because throughout the entire marketing campaign for this movie, Harley Quinn was always front and center anyway. It's not like people don't know that she's in it. She's obviously the only real draw to it, as most people probably aren't familiar with the actual Birds of Prey comic, or the, even the team itself, unless you count that TV series that they made a brief reference to in Crisis on Infinite Earths. But I don't think anyone even remembers that. But everyone was just calling it Birds of Prey for short anyway. And I think most people probably recognize it as, oh hey, that new Harley Quinn movie. The same Harley Quinn from Suicide Squad that I liked if I'm a person who wants to go see Birds of Prey, most likely. So what this is likely a response to is the fact that over the weekend, the movie had a disappointing opening for them. It opened with just 33 million domestically, I believe, and worldwide currently, as of recording this, it sits at slightly over 80 million, and it had about an 84 million budget. So in all likelihood, it probably will make back most of its money, or all of its money, but it's definitely not the hit that they clearly wanted it to be. I mean, when you compare it to Joker, which had a $55 million budget, it had a 96 million opening, and as you probably know, made over a billion worldwide, all said and done, and was nominated for all the awards. By the way, Joaquin Phoenix took home basically all the best actor awards he could get, I think. And if you even want to compare it to Suicide Squad, that had a 133 million opening, 175 budget, and was all when all was said and done after it was out of theaters, got about three quarters of a billion worldwide. So. Compared to past similar DC property films, really not doing that well. And if you want to compare this to another R-rated superhero film release in the month of February, Deadpool, which had a lower budget at $58 million, made $132 million in its domestic opening weekend, and had a final box office return of $782 million worldwide. And that just indicates that there's a general lack of audience interest despite all the feminist marketing that they had leading up to this. And that's also kind of funny because according to a survey from PostTrack, they calculated that the audience over the weekend opening was about 54% male and 65% of those were over the age of 25. So, I mean, you can't even really say that, oh, this is all men's fault, men aren't turning out to see it, that's why it's doing so bad. I mean, apparently it's kind of even, men and women turning out to see it, it's just not a ton of them. Because the movie doesn't look that interesting to most people. And for me personally, now this movie I was mostly going to let fly under my radar, because, I mean, all I needed was to see the first trailer and all of the character designs that came out of it. I always gauge my interest in movies by seeing how I respond to the trailers. To me, a trailer is how you sell a film. You want me to see it, then make a good trailer. 
But personally, what turns me off to it is the complete lack of comic accuracy. Not even just like an interpretation, like a distinct artistic variation on the comics. It seems to me more like just let's just forget that and do something completely different, but also very reminiscent of Suicide Squad, which I am not a fan of, to say the least. But you look at all the character designs, and they just look awful to me. Harley Quinn, she doesn't have the red and black at all. She just looks somehow even more basic than the way she looked in Suicide Squad. You look at Black Canary, obviously looks nothing like any other interpretation of it, even vastly different from the Arrowverse versions, which, to their credit, look mostly like they should look. Of course, they don't have the fishnets. But hey, I'm still a huge fan of Katie Lotz's version, even if it doesn't technically have the canary cry. And you also look at Huntress. She looks nothing like any other version that I've seen of her. Not even the Arrowverse version, which I actually thought was fairly decent and critically underused because she only appeared in, like, what, two episodes? The last one being called Birds of Prey, actually, where she has a little fight with Canary. And her costume design looked alright, too. But this one doesn't look like she has a mask, doesn't look like she has a cloak. What's she got? She got nothing. It just looks boring. It looks low quality. And I get that they're trying to go with a more, I guess, I don't know, street-level version of the characters, but I mean, if you're gonna call it Birds of Prey, then, then, you know, it ought to look something like what it's adapting. And then there's Cassandra Kane, who, I don't know, she's a much younger version of the Batgirl she was in the comics, but she clearly, as far as I can tell, takes very, very, very little from what her original version is depicted to be. So, who exactly this is supposed to be appealing to is a mystery to me. And then you got this character of Black Mask, who's been in a few different versions of Batman media. The earliest I can remember seeing him was in the Batman series, The Batman, from 2004. And he was also in Batman Arkham Origins and Under the Red Hood, the animated movie. And, you, you know, usually he's portrayed to be the usual rough-and-tough kind of mobster guy. But in this movie, he's played kind of differently by Ewan McGregor. And he said in an interview, because he was asked this question, and I feel like... He would only address this if he was asked, because, I mean, are, are you really going to say no in this type of a question? He was asked by an interviewer from Variety if he believed that the Black Mask and Victor Zaz characters were gay, because of, apparently, they have, they have a close relationship in the film, and the character of Black Mask acts a bit flamboyant. Apparently, acting flamboyant has to mean gay nowadays, but... I don't know, I guess that's progressivism for you. So he was asked by this Muppet-sounding goober over here, or actually he sounds more like a bad impression of Louis Armstrong, but yeah, go ahead and check out how awkward it kind of is. There was, you know, on the social media, on the internet, they wanted you guys to be more than just friends. Yeah. yeah. So are you guys gay in the movie? It's very comp it's Their relationships is, is very much yeah. uh, based in there's a want and a need in there for yeah. sure. And, and, and there's, a, there's like a real love of anarchy. And um, yeah, there's a, I, I, you know, I think they, um, More I think. More than likely, yes. Yes. More than likely. <laughs> you heard it here first. And oh, <laughs> they're like, uh-oh, Wonder Brothers said we weren't yeah, supposed to say so clearly, it's not a very serious question. I mean, as you can see, they're not going to say no to that. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that time when Donald Glover was asked if he thought 
that Lando was pansexual in this film because he apparently had some kind of close relationship to a robot, you know, he's not going to say no. Because if he says no, then you know what happens. Then they get accused of being, uh, you know, bigoted or anti-whatever. They're, they're just going to say yes if the question's asked. And that's all that really is, at least in my opinion. So back to who this film really appeals to. Clearly, it's not going to please the major comic book fans or even people who have a passing familiarity with the comics because it doesn't resemble them pretty much at all. The lump sum of Suicide Squad fans don't seem to be that interested in it, unless they were more of a vocal minority than we thought, which I don't think is true, but... And then you have these people who are all, yes, pro-feminism, more female-led films, this is great, we see females kicking ass, yes, what do you mean it's tanky? What do you mean no one likes this? This is the fault of men, I tell you! But that's not true, because you have one woman that did really well, you have Captain Marvel that did really well, although, maybe could be argued that that's just because of Marvel's good track record and it was the lead-in to Endgame, but I digress. Wonder Woman 1984 looks amazing to me, I'm definitely gonna see that. Black Widow looks pretty good. Bunch of people will probably see that. Again, because it's Marvel, but, you know. And at the same time, if you're pushing feminism, that means that you're trying to show that feminine qualities are just as important as masculine qualities, right? I mean, the whole thing is about equality, not superiority, technically. Or at least it's supposed to be. So why is it that when you see a movie in a similar genre that depicts violence, but it's a male main character, does the media jump and say that this is promoting toxic masculinity, and it's empowering basement-dwelling incels, and all sorts of nonsensical things like that? That's just ultra-violent males, you know how they are, we gotta dial that down. And yet you have a movie, which is supposed to be ultra-violence as well, but just with females, and it's okay, and you should champion this. Does that make any sense? It seems like there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance here. But enough about my opinion. What do the people who have actually seen it think overall? So generally I like to discourage paying too much attention to aggregate review sites because the review scores can be super inflated or super deflated when they get mobbed by people who excessively love a film or excessively hate a film or both at the same time and then reviews start getting deleted and oh my gosh, what's going on? But over on Rotten Tomatoes, it currently sits at an 80% from both critics and audiences alike. That's a bit weird, usually the numbers are drastically different. But you think, oh, 80% from everyone who's seen it? That means must mean it's pretty good, this is a sleeper hit. Not so fast. Metacritic tells a slightly different story. And if you go on there, critics on average give it a score of 60 and audiences give it an average score of 5.8 or 58. So, again, the numbers seem to pretty much agree there, strangely. But they seem to say that the overall sentiment from people who've seen it is that it's eh, kind of average, maybe a little slightly above, but not that much, just mostly average. So all that being said, I still don't care whether this movie does well or fails. I just don't like the whole Suicide Squad aesthetic. I definitely don't like that they continued it in this one. I'm glad that it seems that we're finally rid of the curse of the Jared Leto Joker. Except now he's a vampire, so there's that. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, the real takeaway here, and this applies to Terminator Dark Fate as well, is not that people aren't ready for a female-led franchise film or action film or really any kind of film. It's that if you make something which, by all indications, kind of seems like it's going to stink, 
most people are probably going to smell it. Star Trek Picard. Where do I start with this? Now, I'm going to preface this by saying that this is going to be more of a rant, because I have a lot of thoughts about this, and they might not necessarily be the most concise and fact-checked thing ever. So, but the first thing I'll get out of the way is all the rumors that have been circulating recently about CBS selling Star Trek to NBC and Seth MacFarlane, and Sherry Redstone firing Alex Kurtzman. First of all, the source of these rumors is 4chan, and you know just about how much you can trust 4chan for accurate leaks and rumors. So, I mean, I don't even know why anyone would seriously report on this unless they're just not smart or they're joking around. But you have one website bounding into comics that seems to take this kind of seriously and post tweets from this one account, who I really can't tell if it's a parody account or not. It retweets a bunch of things from a parody account and posts a bunch of stuff from different YouTube channels that are known for pretty much just posting clickbait videos that hate on stuff. Click hate videos, if you want. So to start with, all of this information is already standing on shaky ground before I even analyze it. But if I did analyze it, it would go like this. CBS is not going to sell Star Trek. It's one of their biggest franchises, and they make a ton of money off the merchandising, and it's the only thing they have selling CBS Access right now. I mean, what else is on there? Twilight Zone reboot? It sucks. No one cares. And Star Trek Picard was actually their most streamed piece of content since they started the service anyway. So unless someone offered them, I'm going to assume, a huge price, maybe in the billions range, I don't see them selling it, and Seth MacFarlane's off doing his own thing. He's got the Orville, he's got all his other shows, he's got his other deals, his other ventures. I mean, I know he's a big Star Trek fan, but I don't think he, even he has the capital to buy an entire brand off of another media company. It just doesn't seem that plausible. Would I like it to be true? Sure. I'd like Seth MacFarlane to have the rights. I think he would do the franchise justice. I mean, he's done Orville justice, and that's his own thing. It's a good show that's comedic, yet has some serious moments, and if he did Star Trek, I'm sure it would be similar, just with more serious moments and more sci-fi elements. And one thing you actually notice if you look at the writing credits of the individual episodes for both New Trek and Orville is that Seth MacFarlane actually gets sci-fi writers to do the episodes when he's not actually doing them himself, even former Star Trek writers. So, I mean... If that's not a clear indication of one major reason why Orville tends to be something agreeable to most old Star Trek fans and New Trek isn't, I don't know what is. And on the firing of Kurtzman, I mean, I'm fairly certain that they signed a huge deal with Kurtzman, or in the very least his production company Secret Hideout, a multi-year deal, multi-million dollars, and they still have all of these shows in production, some of which I think are going to come out soon, at least the animated one. Picard is airing now, Discovery Season 3 is on its way, so... I mean, if they were going to cut it off suddenly, then what? Just get somebody else? Can they really just break a contract like that? I don't think so. I wish they could, and for the life of me, I seriously don't know why people keep hiring Alex Kurtzman. This man is a franchise killer. He killed Amazing Spider-Man, he was the writer on Amazing Spider-Man 2. Killed. Done. Sucked. And he was the writer, and I think director, on the Mummy movie with Tom Cruise, which was supposed to kick off the Dark Universe. Killed. Because it sucked. He is a franchise poison. Stop hiring him thinking that he's going to do good for your brand. He may have big ideas, but that's it. No know-how with which to execute them properly. 
So let me get into the issues I have personally with the show so far. I've watched the first three episodes, probably won't go any further because of how disappointed I've been. Uh, the last time I talked about it was when they released the first trailer for Picard, and they put all the member berries in the trailer, so of course I was going to say, oh yeah, you know, it looks pretty good, it might be interesting, might be a return to form, at least that's what they're hinting at. That's kind of the same thing that they try to hint with Discovery Season 2, but you know, again, it's Kurtzman Trek. You know what you're getting into. So the first thing I notice is just how poorly Picard himself is treated by other characters in the show. First, he gets essentially blamed for a tragedy by this lady interviewer when it's not even his fault. I mean, rogue androids, or I guess they're not androids, they're just robots. Otherwise, they wouldn't be used for menial labor, which, you know, in itself doesn't seem logical. Why would you use these semi-sentient things to do work that other humans could do? Or if it's something that only a machine could do... Why not just build a machine to do whatever the task is? Why do you need something that looks like a human that people are clearly uncomfortable around for some reason? I don't know why. I thought people in the 24th century were over this already, but whatever. And then there's the way Starfleet just seems to have completely forgotten who the hell he is. Like, the one receptionist at the academy is like, Yeah, can I have your name? It's like, Name? What do you mean, name? How do you not know who this guy is? If this was any sort of realistic military academy, they would for sure know who Captain Picard is. Everything he did, and he did a lot of major stuff, would have been taught in all their courses. So, that didn't make any sense. Oh yeah, and by the way, did anyone notice how they had the Discovery Enterprise on the hologram on the ceiling instead of the classic Enterprise? Yeah, no, get that crap out of here. That's not the real original Enterprise, no. I mean, you show the original D Enterprise, which is also kind of weird. You just skip A, B, and C, and then you just go straight to D. Also, where's E? They keep member burying D. Where's E? Huh? But anyway, then when he talks to the Commodore, oh man. What a painful converse- what a painful scene this was to bear witness to. First of all, the way she treats him is, again, like he hasn't saved the Earth a whole host of times. And then she curses at him? With the F word? I've heard enemies speak more civilly to each other before. This is not how discourse goes in the 24th century. But then, one thing she specifically says pissed me the hell off. What he says to her, it's not up to us who decides who lives and who dies. And she says, yes, it is. And it's like, hold on a minute, back the truck up. No, it isn't. Isn't the whole point of the philosophy behind the Prime Directive that you don't get to play God and decide who lives and who dies? Like, who would even say that? I don't even think the Section 31 guy from Deep Space Nine would even say that. In fact, I think one thing he told uh, Julian was that we do the dirty work in the universe so that you people can afford to be moral. Not so you can go around playing hokey chess with interplanetary species and their exploding planets. I mean, above all, aren't they supposed to be on a mission of peace most of the time? Wouldn't they have taken the opportunity of the Romulan struggle to try and make a peace deal with them? The whole thing where they say, oh, the Romulans have always been our enemies, that doesn't make sense. The Human-Romulan War was before even the Enterprise era. Why would they still hold a grudge like that? Sure, they weren't exactly friends in The Next Generation and the original series, but the last we saw of them, things were left off kind of hopefully. I mean, they worked together in the Dominion War, and I know what you're going to say, that was based on a lie. But an alliance is an alliance, and the last thing you see a Romulan telling a Starfleet guy was in Nemesis when the commander says to Picard, you made a friend in the Romulan Empire today, Picard. I hope the first of many. 
So what, are we supposed to believe that that just led to nothing, and in fact went in the opposite direction? Why? Isn't Star Trek supposed to go in a positive direction, not a negative one? And on top of that, B4 didn't turn out to have Data's full memories after all. They just disassembled him like it was nothing, and they're saying, oh yeah, now we have to go on this wild goose chase to find some girl who we can get one neuron from, one electronic neuron, or what do they call it? A positron, and then we can clone his entire brain. Right, because that's really how things work. You can really clone a person's whole brain from a single brain cell. Give me a break. And this show also has a strange habit of trying to get us to care about characters that have kind of come out of nowhere, like this person who I guess was his former first officer on the Enterprise E? I don't know. Who keeps calling him JL. I forgot her name because these characters are so forgettable. And she's like, JL, JL, JL. And they show like one flashback where he uh, resigns from Starfleet. And then she's like, oh, you didn't call me in all these years and now you just come for help? The scene has no emotional impact because I'm not attached to this character. If it was Jordi LaForge saying, Hey Picard, why haven't you called in so long? Then I would have felt something because it's like, Yeah, now I'm very familiar and aware of the relationship between these two characters. But this one? Nothing. And then the whole thing about the girl Dodge and Soji being, I don't know, uh, Picard's daughter, Data's daughter, both their daughters, I don't know. And her being the chosen one now, of course we have to have another chosen one story. It just seems like very artificial ways of getting us to care about her when we really know nothing about her, we don't know what she's like. If they would have just left those reveals for the end of the season, then maybe it would have had some impact, but right at the start I'm like, yeah, okay, totally believe you, really don't care. It just doesn't get to me, none of it gets to me, it's all just remember this, remember that. And you can't just do that and expect everyone to be on board. It, it it doesn't work like that. What else? What else? What else is logical? Um, the whole thing with the Mars shipyards. First of all, why would their defense grid consist of like a million satellites in orbit right above the planet, equipped with death rays, and have them all be controllable by one single terminal hack? Does that sound secure to you? Does that even sound remotely logical from a military standpoint? from a science fiction standpoint, from even just a purely logical standpoint. It just seems very contrived for the sole fact that they wanted to make some kind of conflict with Picard and wanting to bring back an android, because now all synths are banned. And uh, minor gripes I had, Romulans all look like humans again, like in the original series. Uh, I guess that's because they apparently wanted to show different ethnicities of Romulans, so they'll be the ones with the more intricate makeup, like there was in the Next Generation era, but I mean, they never said that in-universe, and this is the first time I've heard of anything like that, so eh. The few starships you see in the Mars shipyards, they all look like crap. Where's Ralph McQuarrie when you need him? Or Doug Drexler? And when they reintroduce Hugh, it's completely unceremonious. He just walks in and nothing. It's, there's no reveal, no anything, he's just kind of there. And overall, the story that they're setting up about this girl being the destroyer of the Borg or the Romulans or I don't know, it just doesn't appeal to me, I don't care, there's no investment in it. I mean, the least he could have done was bring back the Enterprise crew, then maybe I would have been on board for just that. But then Picard says when someone suggests to him, hey, you should get the old crew back, he's like, no, I wouldn't do that because they would be too loyal and put themselves in danger for me. And they're trying to make it sound like he totally wouldn't go there and do that again. And yet, in all good things, from Next Generation, 
the first people he goes to for help is the old crew. So there's already been precedent set for that. Why would things be any different now? He even has the same mental problem that's gonna kill him, I think. I think he had that in All Good Things. Which was also kind of weird to just watch him sit there and get told by his doc, Hey, you're gonna die. I hope space kills you first. How weird. So all in all, I just don't like the way they've treated Picard. I mean, Patrick Stewart is fine in the role. Of course he is. He is Picard. And the storyline isn't intriguing, and it doesn't seem aided by the fact that this version of Starfleet seems so cartoonishly evil. You got the mean old Commodore lady, and then you got this Romulan or Vulcan lady. I can't really tell because of the whole thing with Romulans being undercover in Starfleet. I don't know, it's just all over the place. And I really don't get where all of this fake online positivity for the show is coming from. People saying, oh, it's so amazing, it's so great. It's like, no? Have you watched Star Trek before? Even my dad didn't like it after he watched it, and he saw the original series when it first aired. He's the one who got me into Star Trek. I distinctly remember when I was really young, sitting down and watching reruns of The Next Generation when it was on TV in syndication. And watching Star Trek in general is what inspired my affinity for space and science and science fiction and astronomy and all those good things. So to me, it isn't just another movie or just another TV show, you know, it's something big. It's something that's been ingrained in my psyche for decades now. And I'm not trying to say that new Star Trek should only be made for old fans, but in the very least, it should have in it what got us old fans to like it so much. There's gotta be something wrong when you have someone like me who nearly tears up at the end of almost every episode of Next Generation of Deep Space Nine, not as much teared up by the original series, but I was endlessly entertained by it. But when I watch these new Kurtzman-branded series, I just feel dead inside. I get no excitement, no joy, no inspiration, no strong empathy for anyone. Everything just falls flat, and it boldly pisses me off like no series has done before. So if you're like me and you're crazy about Crash Bandicoot, you may have become aware of some news about him recently relating to the next upcoming game in the series. And what is that game going to be? Well, it's going to be a mobile game. Of course. It's Activision, what do you expect? Did you guys not have phones? Yeah, you guys I, all I have phones, phone. right? So this would be the first time that a mobile game has come out related to Crash. I know they've had at least one before, and I think it was Crash Nitro Kart, or some version of it thereof. And the details of this comes from a, an App Store testing company website, Store Maven, where there was a screen cap that had all the details about it. And essentially what it would be is another runner-type game, like Sonic Dash and Super Mario Run, where you would run through all the courses, of course collecting as many Wumpa Fruit and smashing all the crates as you possibly can, as you do in a Crash game. And it also mentions that you would receive assistance from Coco with certain items and weapons. I'm assuming you would get those through microtransactions, of course, because as you know, mobile games are specifically structured in a way that you want to buy ways to play the game faster or play it more efficiently and not spend so much time or get through difficult challenges. So, you know, that's just par for the course. And the main theme of it would be a multiverse kind of conflict where Cortex is sending creatures from the multiverse and you gotta send them back. And that kind of reminds me of a leak from a while back where somebody 
I think it was a 4chan post. I know, why would you listen to 4chan about anything ever? But, just for the sake of talking about it, there are somebody posted about a game that would be called Crash Worlds. And this came from back in November when it was posted. And this game was said to be a semi-open world game, kind of like Mario 3D World. Which, if you think about Mario 3D World, it wasn't really an open world game. It was kind of like New Super Mario Brothers, but if the levels were 3D, with kind of a weird perspective that I could never get used to, so I hope it's not exactly like that. I actually kind of prefer if it would be like the classic Crash games where you run through the hallways and, you know, pretty much just straight up leveled in, in sequence. But I would be okay if, like in 3D World or most Mario games, if each of these worlds had a theme, because usually in Crash games it's a variety of environments you go through in each set of courses, so if they had it so that each set of courses had their own theme, I think that would be an interesting new way of going about a Crash game, even despite it being more like Mario, but as long as they vary up the levels in playstyle enough to make you feel like it doesn't get redundant, then that'd be more than fine. And he also said they would be introducing new mask characters and new boss-type enemies. And speaking of new mask characters, people got their hopes up because there was also an official PlayStation ad. It was like a video trailer or something like that that they released also back last November, I think, or early December, where they showed all these different PlayStation properties in, like, the real world, and you see Crash and... I think it was Coco and Cortex driving on their carts through like a parking garage and you see a mask type character that we haven't seen before in any Crash game and somebody asked one of the artists who works on the game series about it and they seem to kind of indirectly confirm that it was a new character and to top it off they also showed a picture of Crash on a bus and it's a 3D render of him that we haven't exactly seen yet. It's not the 3D render from the remakes. It's a new one that looks even closer to his original look from the PlayStation games. So people point to that and the leak and saying, hey, a new game is coming. And it was said that it was going to be announced in December. Obviously, that didn't happen. So who knows? Maybe they're holding it off for a PlayStation event. I'm still hopeful that we'll get a new, true, real Crash game. And it would be made by the developers who made... Uh, the Insane Trilogy and Spyro Reignited, so you got two tested developer teams who did pretty well so far that would be working on this new iteration, so that gives me some hope. And on top of that, there was also recently a leaker who came out right after Byleth was announced as the last Smash character of the first Fighter's Pass, and he said that Crash would actually be the first character to be revealed for the next Fighters Pass, and previously he had predicted back in, I think it was November or December, I keep getting these two months mixed up because it's all a blur to me, honestly, but he said that uh, at that time that Byleth would be the last Fighter Pack character revealed, and that came to be true, clearly, so maybe he's right about this too. I don't know, we'll see. I do really think that Crash is extremely well suited to the Smash Brothers environment. He would fit right in with all the other video game icons. I mean, I don't know why they haven't put him in yet, but this is definitely the right time to do it. I mean, interest in his IP is at an all-time high in years. You look at the sales of Insane Trilogy, it sold over 10 million. 
and Crash Team Racing Nitro Fueled actually had the biggest release of any Crash game in terms of how many sales it made in its first month of release with 552,000 and they've kept that going with the whole season structure to the gameplay and the added microtransactions of course, why wouldn't they? By the way, still waiting for the PC port of that. Come on Activision, where's that PC port? Ready and waiting. And you know what else else? I also had read a little while back on the website we got this covered that Sony was also looking into possibly making a Crash Bandicoot animated film. And that information came to them from a leaker who previously told them that Bill Murray was going to return for Ghostbusters 3, which he is, and that an Aladdin sequel was in development, which I guess it is at the time, so, you know, that very well might be true too. I remember reading somewhere that Sony was looking to create a film division to create film adaptations of their video game properties, and Crash was, after all, a major mascot of the original PlayStation, so you could see how they'd want to explore that avenue. And would it be the first time even that he's been in animations? There was a Skylanders animated series, and he appeared in that in a few episodes, and it was actually originally planned for there to be 2D drawn animated cutscenes for the original Crash game, which didn't pan out. But the point is, is that that Crash has been in certain animations before, and it would not shock me if he was in one again, but I would be really excited if he did get his own film. I'm gonna watch the Sonic movie, it looks pretty good, especially since they did the redesigns, so even though I said it would be much better if they had just gone 3D animated with it, like Sonic Boom or Wreck-It Ralph, because he had a cameo in that after all. But in the very least, the fact that we have all these leaks and rumors and speculations coming about in the past few months, it shows us that among the fans, there's still a sizable demand for this character to make more appearances in different types of media, and that Activision still has a very vested interest in exploring this IP and continuing it in new and possibly exciting ways. So, maybe the fact that we're getting a mobile game isn't that bad of a thing after all. Ah, oh, man, that was a lot of just me talking. Hopefully it didn't get too irritating, though. And if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. Reminder that you can get to any of our podcasting platforms by going to our Linktree page. That's linktr.ee slash utterlynonsense. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. You know, Instagram, I don't really know what to do with. I still feel like it's a platform mainly for looking at food and pretty people, so... I don't know, not too sure how to get good content out on there. There's so many restrictions on the kind of videos you could post, and they have to be this this screen resolution and this orientation. It's, I don't know. Someone let me know what's the best way to go about that. But anyway, if you like what you hear, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. We appreciate those a lot. And head on over to YouTube, subscribe there. I'll probably post a review for Sonic sometime during the week, probably earlier than later. So keep on the lookout for that. And we'll be back at some point with more like this. And without further ado, 8-Bit Music, play us out.